for listening to this message from the Altar Fellowship. So last, last week I was gone. I was in, in Fresno, California. And part of uh, the reason that I was there, and in fact, the entire reason that I was there was because several months ago I was in worship and, uh, uh, and, and in the middle of worship, I, I heard the voice of the Lord say, Maddie, you need to get back to Fresno as fast as you can. Now, I had, uh, we, we did a, a major conference in Fresno with uh, 12,000 people uh, in 2019, uh, our, our, our ministry here did. And uh, I mean, hundreds of churches gathered with us and God moved in an incredible way there. And so because of that, we have a lot of friends, a lot of family, a lot of friends that feel like family there in Fresno, California. And so um, it wasn't hard for me to say, hey, I need to come to Fresno. The God, Dad said I have to go to Fresno. And uh, so I called a friend of mine and said, hey, man, I don't know why God just put me on your heart. And, um, and, uh, and he said, okay, well, we, we've got this weekend coming up in, um, uh, in August, and we'd love to have you come and be a part of that. And so uh, we began to make plans, and I, I went out there this last weekend, and it was interesting when I... When I first called him and said, hey, I feel like the Lord is drawing me back there and, and urgently he's drawing me back to Fresno, um, I didn't really know why. I, I didn't know what it was that I was going to say or what he was calling me there to proclaim or what it was really that uh, he, he wanted me to focus on trying to accomplish uh, until just a couple weeks before the trip. Uh, we were here on a Wednesday night and, and um, we were in worship and Yahweh began to speak about, you know, what, what I would call like the revelation of bridal identity. You know, we, we began to, I think, collectively as a church come into the knowledge of God, um, not only as, as master, but as husband, like the lover of our soul. And, um, and I recognized at the time, maybe not for you, but for me, it's like a little awkward to even say that, you know, um, and, and yet in Hosea 2, God dreams of a day in which we will, we will call him my husband and no longer call him my master. And so uh, it, was, it was sort of a, there was an internal conflict for me. And I realized that there's this, this, this thing in me that is willing to respond to God the way that a, a slave responds to his master, but is not yet. Was, was not yet yielded to the point at which I would respond to God the way a, a wife responds to her husband. And, um, and so for me at least, and I would venture to guess probably for, for many of us in the room, this has been a stretch. The last month of teaching on this identity of, of God as our bridegroom, as the lover of our souls, as our husband has been, um, it's been a stretch, you know? And so I went out there to Fresno this last week and I, I taught some of the truths that um, the Spirit has been speaking to us, and it was explosive, man. Uh, thousands of, of people in this church, it was a large church that I went to, thousands of people in this church running to the altar, being touched by the Lord in, in powerful ways. I mean, uh, for, for a significant amount of time after the service had ended, people were still there at the altar in tears, being ministered to by the Holy Spirit. And... Um, and I was, I was so encouraged, you know, I don't get very often the chance to go to other churches, right? Um, and I, I deeply love this one, 
but for me to be able to see things that we as members of the altar can take for granted uh, here are, are revolutionary other places. Are, they're transformational truths. And uh, often we hear uh, in the office, we get testimonies and feedback from pastors and leaders, worship leaders and youth pastors from other churches all around the United States and even around the world who are saying, listen, we're listening to, to the podcast, to the teaching that is coming out of the Altar Fellowship, and it's transforming the way that we see God. It's transforming the way we approach our marriage and our family, and, uh, and we're just so thankful for what you're doing. So I, I want you, I, I'm telling you this because I want to stir you up in faith that what we're doing here is we're creating an incubator for revelation. We're creating an environment that is conducive to a revelation that, that, is, not on, uh, that is not only going to thrive in the context of our church. But what we're, what we're doing here is we're creating an, a sort of incubation chamber where revelation can be birthed and developed and applied and sharpened to the point at which out, outside of the walls of the altar fellowship, this revelation can cut through years and years. I mean, generations of almost truth to get to the heart of, of the generation that God is trying to reach. And so um, every one of you, I, I want you to understand that what you do is important here. That if, if all you do is come and lend your voice to the expression of worship that comes out of this house, that's a critical role. Nobody else can release the sound of, of praise that you can. Nobody else can. Not me, not any, anyone on our worship team. If all you do is come here and you, you, you raise your voice to the Lord, that is in itself a, a crucial piece of the puzzle that I think the Father is putting together. So thank you for being here, for being a part of what God is doing because it's reaching a lot more people than just the ones in this room. We get... I don't know, a couple dozen letters a week from people that are in prison right now that are hearing the sound of, of heaven that's coming out of this house. It's awakening something in them. And, uh, and, and I have a suspicion that that's going to continue. So, so thank you for being here. Thank you for bringing what you have, your unique sound, your passion for the Lord and your heart for his kingdom into this house because uh, we would not be complete without you. So thank you for being here. Um, you know, I've been, of course, for the last month or so, we've been meditating significantly on this, this bridal revelation, right? And uh, uh, we spent uh, a significant amount of time in Hosea chapter two. I think that probably bears revisiting this morning. I'm gonna do my best to be quick because I've got a, uh, uh, a, heavy, rev uh, a heavy announcement to make for you. But in, in Hosea chapter two, starting in verse 14, this is sort of, I wanna provide a little bit of context for where I, I want to go this morning. It says, um, Hosea 2.14 says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness. And I know Pastor Ian spoke an incredible word about the wilderness and about God's alluring love for us that he demonstrates there. He says, I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor as a door of hope. Um, there she, she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. Gosh, I've been, you know, for 15 years, I've been in uh, walking with the Lord and, and in ministry leadership for the vast majority of that. And, uh, and this, it, it makes every religious uh, impulse, it offends every religious instinct in me, you know? It's like, we are very comfortable with God as as, as master and ourselves as slave. But he, um, he would love to offend that sense inside of us and to draw us into a, 
a place of deeper communion with him. It's like the prodigal son who, who he determines in his heart, he says, I'm going to go back to my father's house and I'm going to tell him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He says, I, I'm not, I don't really believe that you would accept me as family, so will you just let me be a slave in your house? And if I'm honest, this is the way that the vast majority of the Western church approaches God. I don't deserve to be family to you, so let me just be a slave in your house. Right? I get to be in your house. I get to come to church. I get to help park cars or be a part of the greeting team or the worship team. You know, there's pastors at pulpits that, that are there because they're just serving God, you know, and he told me to do this and I'm going to do it faithfully. And, and, um, and, and God is saying, I, I want you to understand that, that you're, though you are content to be a slave, I'm, I'm inviting you into my family. I want you to see me as husband. I want you to see me as father. I want you to know that what I really have for you is a deeper intimacy than you're comfortable requesting from me. And so this, this boy makes the long trip back home and he says, uh, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called to your... Uh, uh, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father actually interrupts him. He's going through his whole speech and he's about to say, make me like one of your hired servants. The father interrupts him and he, he uh, puts a robe on his shoulders and a ring on his finger. He kisses his face and puts sandals on his feet and he kills the fatted calf. And he says, my son who was lost is found. My son who was dead, he's alive again, right? And so there's this, there's this like offensively extravagant reception for a rebellious son. Uh, this offensively extravagant reception for his rebellious son. Any father, a father with any sense, according to the, the world's wisdom, would have said, well, you know, I need to see if his repentance is genuine. You know, I need to see if he really understands what he did wrong. I, I, need, to, I need to see if he's really learned his lesson before I can trust him again. The father doesn't, isn't concerned with any of that in the story. He's just like, Fling the doors open, kill the fatted calf, my boy's home. And uh, this extravagant love, we see it demonstrated in the book of Hosea in a beautiful way. And that's why God is, is dreaming of a day in Hosea 2.16. It shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. He says, uh, for I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day, I will make a covenant with them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, with the creeping things of the ground, bow and sword of battle, I shall shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And uh, so if you want to know God's heart for his church, you should look in Hosea chapter 2. You want to know what God's plan is or his passion for the church? You should look in Hosea chapter 2. He wants to make family out of his enemies. You hear that? He wants to make family out of his enemies. Those who have offended him most, most deeply, he wants to bring them into his house. He wants to allure her in the wilderness. He wants to betroth her to him in, in, uh, in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. He wants to betroth her to him in faithfulness so that she will know that he is the Lord. And now this is beautiful. This is beautiful. And, and the, I, my hope is that as I'm sharing this, that though maybe your, your mind or your, um, the traditions in which you were brought up are very offended by this, this kind of intimate, uh, approach of, of God. I, uh, my, my hope is that there'd be something in your spirit that's saying, I want that. 
I want to know God like that. And the, the question that we then ask, I think hot on the heels of that impulse, of that desire of, of the Holy Spirit inside us, is this, how? And where do we start? Like, how do we get to a place in which we can know God the way that a, a bride knows her husband? How can we get to a place where we can know God the way a son knows his father, where we can walk with him and talk with him, when we can feel his presence, when we can know his touch, when we can hear his voice, when we know what it, what it feels like, when we know what it's like to be near him. I, I think that's a question that we, we have to ask. How? How do we get there? And um, I, I think there are probably many ways that I could answer this or many ways that I could say the same thing. And, and I'm going to go this morning to Matthew chapter 25. And um, I, I know that I'm moving fast, but I want to make sure that we cover the ground that we have to cover and, and get to the destination that we're headed to. If we're going to understand this bridal paradigm, I think we have to look at Matthew chapter 25. I'll start in verse 1 of Matthew 25, and it, it says this. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. And those who were foolish, they took their lamps and they took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels uh, with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And then all those virgins arose and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. That's what he says. I do not know you. Do you remember what the, the end of that passage in Hosea 2 said? then you will know the Lord. That's, that's the standard, to know him. That's the Hebrew word yada, which is the word used when it says that Adam knew his wife and she conceived a child. There's a, a, a dimension of, of intimacy that creates uh, multiplication, fruitfulness. And, um, and he doesn't want us just to know about him, to understand him in a textbook sort of way. There's a Wikipedia page about Maddie Montgomery. and God knows who's read that, but... None of them know me the way that my wife knows me, right? You could, read, you could read all about it. There's books about my life. I wrote them. It's not like, you know. You, know. you, could, read, you could read one of my books. It's not like there's not. They're good books, yeah. You know, <laughs> I feel like I should make that disclaimer. It's not other people writing books about me. But I, uh, you know, I've written books, and you could read my books, and you still wouldn't know me, even, if, even in the same arena as the way that my wife knows me, right? And, uh, and so the end goal, the, the ultimate accomplishment, the standard for us is to know him. That's what Hosea 2 is about. This is, what, this is the standard in Matthew 25. He says, assuredly, in verse 12, he says, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, in verse 13, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. I want to go back through and pull some things out as, as the Spirit will give us grace for today. It says, and the kingdom of, of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. I, I want you to understand that all ten of these girls were virgins. That all ten of them had said no to the wrong things. Right? They'd said no to lesser lovers. They'd preserved and 
protected themselves, they'd sustained themselves in, in hope for this moment, right? And uh, I think that, that sometimes we feel like that is the accomplishment. Our, the word we would use, the way that I was raised in ministry was consecration. We've consecrated ourselves unto the Lord. We've stayed away from you know, dirty websites and magazines and we don't listen to non-Christian music and we don't watch movies with GD in them. And, you know, we, uh, we, we, we avoid all the stuff we're supposed to avoid and we feel like that's the accomplishment. We're ready for the bridegroom. And the truth is there will be many people on that day who realize they never knew, they were so fixated on consecrating themselves that they never actually knew him. Yeah. Right? They were so fixated on avoiding every other lover that they forgot to fall in love with the only one that really mattered. You know, I said to the men this morning at men's prayer, and as a, as a side note, if you are not a part of men's prayer on Sunday mornings at seven, we get together at seven here in the sanctuary and we seek the Lord together, you need to be, men. You need to be here for that. Um, my, in my estimation, all the men who are members of this church are at men's prayer at seven on, on Sundays. Those are the pillars in our community. My hope is that if you're a man and you're a part of this church, that you would want to be a pillar of this community. And, um, and if you want to know how, come to men's prayer. I mean, that's just lending your voice to the, the sound of intercession from husbands and fathers and brothers and sons as we come together to set this atmosphere in order for all that God has planned on Sunday mornings. That is, for me, the most important thing I do each week is, is men's prayer. It is I think the most sacred part of this ministry. It's the engine that drives this thing. And so men, if you are uh, wanting to take your walk with the Lord or your connection to this church to another level, we'll see you Sunday at seven. <laughs> okay. And so I, I said to the men this morning at men's prayer that, uh, uh, that there is, um, gosh, I got caught up talking about men's prayer. I forgot what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> we got, we got, it was good. It was really good. Yeah. <laughs> we were, we were, t- we were talking at men's prayer about, um, about how, uh, we are too easily pleased. And, um, and in our eagerness to be satisfied with the things of this world, we sometimes exchange uh, an infinite or, or a superior satisfaction for, you know, a, a temporary fix, right? We'll sell our birthright for a bowl of soup. And, um, uh, and as I was sharing this with, with the men, one of the things that, that I said is, is, is I don't want to make you hate sin. I want to make you love his presence, Amen. right? My, my goal as in, in the position of leadership I've been given is I don't want to make people here hate sin. I want to make people here love his presence to such a degree that anything that would take them out of his presence would become detestable, right? It's, I don't, I'm not faithful to my wife because I hate every other woman, right? I'm faithful to my wife because I'm in love with my wife. And and because anything that would violate my ability to love and to serve and to honor her is detestable to me. And and so I I think we sometimes we we've been taught that that we need to learn to hate sin more. And you need to read a book about how bad your sin is. And you need to get you know, you need to make sure you confess to as many people as possible. So the embarrassment will help you hate your sin. Right. This is it's the negative reinforcement. You learn about that in psychology. One on one freshman year of college. You know, you learn to punish yourself every time you sin so that uh, you will be less likely to desire your sin. And, um, and, and that may work for you to clean up the, uh, the, the acts that you've been engaging in that are 
dishonoring to the Lord, but it won't fix the thing in your heart that still wants to satisfy yourself at the expense of his presence. You'll just find, you'll find another dysfunction to fill it with. You'll find a socially acceptable dysfunction to fill it with. Like, here's, here's what I mean. You may trade all the time you spent in sin for time that you spend in church and still be far from him. Right? Or maybe, like, maybe instead of doing drugs, now you're like on the prayer team in church. And you're still just as far from him as you ever were. Just like these girls. All 10 of these girls are virgins. All 10 of them had said no to the bad stuff. And five of them never actually knew him. So my, my, my hope for you, my prayer for you is, is not just, is not to teach you to hate sin. My, my, my goal or my, my aim this morning and, and every morning as we gather together is to help you love his presence. To love his presence. To be so obsessively fixated on being with him that anything that would take you away from the conscious awareness of his nearness would be detestable, worthless, and vile to you, that it would be bitter to you. And so these, these t- 10 virgins, it says that in verse two of Matthew 25, it says five of them were wise and five were foolish. Now those who were foolish took their lamps and they took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But the bridegroom was delayed and they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And then all those virgins arose and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. Now, um, I understand that it's easy for us to sort of begin to try to fill in cultural gaps in the story. You know, we read, um, you know, that they, they, the, the five wise virgins arose and they, they trimmed their lamps and they, they were good. But the foolish ones, they trimmed their lamps and their lamps were going out. And so they said to the wise, give us some of your oil. And the wise girls said, uh, uh, no, lest they're wouldn't be enough for us also. So go to those who, who sell and, and uh, buy for yourselves. Now it's easy for us to just think, well, that just must be a, a product of their time. Um, and I wrestled with this for years because I just didn't understand it. You know, I, I didn't understand it. Um, and I thought there's got to be some sort of cultural insight. So for years, I, I tried to read commentaries and studies and, and um, I just couldn't find I couldn't find anybody that could give me any sort of historical context about why a burning lamp was a critical component for a woman to be, become a bride. You know, I, uh, I met my wife years ago and, and uh, there were s- several things that I was looking for in a, uh, a woman and a, a lantern was not one of them. You know, it wasn't like, <laughs> it wasn't like you are the most beautiful girl I've ever laid eyes on. You're full of the Holy Ghost. You make me want to be closer to Jesus, but one thing before I propose, do you have a lantern? (laughs) It seems like a ridiculous notion, right? And yet we sort of read this passage and we think, well, that must be what's going on. And can I tell you, I I just don't believe that it is. And, and here's, 
here's why. Um, I asked the Lord a few years ago, God, why were these girls left out of the, the wedding feast? Why weren't they welcomed into this covenantal union that you were drawing them into? And, uh, and his answer was very simple. He said, Maddie, it's because they weren't there. Oh, that's a lot simpler than I think we, we make it. He, he says, it says this, it says the wise answered saying, no, we can't give you our oil lest there should not be enough for us and you. So go to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. Do you want to know why they weren't welcomed into the wedding banquet? Why they missed the opportunity to be joined to the bridegroom? It was because they weren't there when he came calling. And, and why weren't they there? It was because for some reason they thought they have to have a burning lamp. Guys, I, I need to confess. I remember standing at pulpits and preaching this passage and telling people, essentially, now I maybe didn't say it this explicitly, but essentially what I was communicating was if you can't produce your own oil and if you can't light your own fire, you're going to go to hell. I was preaching a works-based salvation You've got to produce the oil. You've got to bring the oil and the fire. And if you can't bring the oil and the fire, you're doomed. That was the message I was preaching from a pulpit. And people are responding and they're amening and they're agreeing with it. And what I was preaching was contrary in every way to the gospel of grace. In fact, I, I don't want to single anyone out, but I'll bet if you hear... Matthew 25 preached from most other pulpits in the Western world. They'll tell you, essentially, if you can't produce oil and fire, you might go to hell. And so we have to contend with the word. But we've got to ask ourselves, what, what could these girls have done? You want to know what they could have done? They could have stayed. And here's the issue. I think I know enough about human nature to recognize that what these girls did, these five foolish girls, what they did is what so many of us have done and even are doing today. They, they woke up at about midnight when the cry went out, behold, the bridegroom comes. Prepare yourselves, get ready. He's, he's coming. The, the feast is about to happen. You're going to come into the fulfillment of of, of all that you've hoped for, all that you've dreamed about, this is the moment when you're coming into communion with your bridegroom, with your, your, your lover. And, uh, and they wake up and they, like everybody else, they trim their lamps and they realize they didn't bring enough oil. And now the fire is burning out. And so they say to the five wise virgins, they say, well, give us some of your oil. And they say, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you. So go to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And these girls are faced in that moment with a decision. Do we leave and, and, and go to the, those who sell and, and buy more so that we, when we show up, we can have it together? Or do we stay here with our empty lamps with no oil and no flame? And I think, I think that they looked at the other girls, these five wise virgins who had brought enough oil, and they thought, man, look what she's got. She, she thought ahead. She brought enough oil. You know, she's got a a bright burning fire in her lamp and I don't have anything. And they thought, there's no way the bridegroom would accept me when there's somebody like her standing right here. 
And I don't know about you, but more times than I can remember, I have thought, you know what, I, I don't have the gift that somebody else has. I don't have the oil of the anointing that's on someone else's life. Man, I wish I could sing as good as them. I wish I could preach as good as them. Right? I, I wish that I looked as prepared and, and brilliant as, as they are. You know what? I, I wish that I was as, as passionate and bold and outgoing as them. I wish that I had the kind of fire that they have for souls and, 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 and could communicate the gospel the way that they do. I wish that when I prayed for sick people, they got healed the way that that person does. You know, we, we can, can so often look at the person next to us and think they've got it. They got the oil. They've got the fire. But I, me, I mean, I'm just me. I don't have any of that stuff. I don't burn as bright as them. I don't shine in the darkness like they do. And, and if I don't shine in the darkness the way that they do, then there's just no way the bridegroom is going to accept me. There's no, if I don't have the same kind of oil or the same anointing or the same gifts or talents that they do, why would God want anything to do with me? And so we resign ourselves to continuing to live like slaves just to get into God's house. When he's called us to, to covenant, he's called us to intimacy. Can I tell you what these girls should have done? they should have done was stayed. Stayed. Brady, what they should have done was just stay. Sat on the doorstep and said, I may not have what he has. I may not have what she has, but all that I am is yours. I may not be able to measure up. I may not have the oil that she has, or I may not have the fire that she has, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm here, I'm not here for oil. I'm not here for fire. I'm here for you, my bridegroom king. And when you show up, I, my hands may be empty, but I'm gonna be waiting for you. I'm not gonna miss that. That's what it's all been about. And what those girls would have learned if they would have stayed is that their bridegroom has got more than enough oil to fill their lamp and to light their fire. They would have found that out of himself, he's able to meet and exceed all of their needs. He can fulfill their, their deepest needs, their deepest inadequacies. If they would just stay in the place of simple devotion, they would find that he's the one that can meet their need. And so what do we do? Like, how do we get there? It's, it's easy to... To, to clap or to say amen or to hear this word from Hosea 2 that God is dreaming of a day that his people will call him my husband and no longer call him my master. And it's, it's easy to say, okay, I agree with that. It's in God's word. That's, that's what I want. But how do we get there? You want to know how you get there? You stay. You, you stay in the place of pursuit. You stay in the place of surrender. You resist the urge to compare yourself to the people next to you, to measure yourself against someone else's success or the favor or the blessing of God on their life. You resist the urge to compete with your family and you stay put. And you say, I may not have what, what they have, but all that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. Friends, if I have ever preached a message that could transform your life, this is it. This is it. Be free from this impulse of competition. There is no, there is no competition in the kingdom. Your success is my success. 
We're in this thing together, man. And, and if, if you, I want to rejoice in the fact that your, your lamp is, is full of oil and that your fire is shining bright. It's not about, I'm not competing against you. I know the bridegroom is coming and he's looking for me, right? He's got, he's got my name on his lips and in his heart. And, uh, and I may not have a lamp that looks like yours, but I'm going to be there when he comes. Waiting for him, watching for him with my heart full of expectation and anticipation that he's going to, he's going to meet my needs. He's going to fill my lamp. He's going to light my fire and transform everything in me. Hmm. You know, as we, uh, as we talk about this, this place of life, it's like simple devotion. It's, it's just devotional surrender to him to say, I, I refuse to compete. I'm just here, like curled up on the doorstep with my empty lamp. I'm just here. And I feel like there's a grace today that many of you, you've been competing for a long time. You've been trying to fight your way into the spotlight or into his favor. You've been trying to figure out your issues to, so you can get your lamp filled. And maybe you've left the place of, of proximity because you were convinced that if, if, I, if I go and can figure out a way to fill my lamp and light my fire, then, then he'll be pleased with me. Then he'll be proud of me. Then he'll accept me or affirm me. But I, I want to call you back this morning to this, to this simple paradigm that, that what it means to succeed in the kingdom is to stay. Stay in pursuit. Stay in his presence. Stay in his word. Stay in his, in his family. Because I'm telling you, that's the place that he's going to come looking for you. That's the place that covenant will come calling. And so I just, uh, I just release to those of you in this room that are that are seeing yourself in the story, I just release right now like a grace to believe that he is faithful. That he who promised is faithful and he will do all that he said he will do. He's gonna fill your lamp. Even today, he's pouring out a new oil into your life. Even today, he's igniting a new fire in your life. A passion not, not for burning lamps, but a passion for his presence and his presence alone. Well, right now, in Jesus' name, we just release faith, God. I release faith that can endure the temptation to compare or compete. I release faith right now that can endure inadequacy or the fear of man or, or insecurity or the fear of man. I release right now a faith that triumphs over fear that would keep us positioned and postured in the place of need, that we would be, be willing to confess our need and that we would bring it again and again and again to you, knowing, Jesus, that you are the only one that can meet what we have need of. We bless you. We bless you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You know, um, as, a, as, as a leader, for me, one of my um, main priorities is um, to, to keep my eye on the pillar of fire as he leads. Uh, to, to just go where he goes. I mean, that's the, it's the paradigm of leadership that we learned in, through the, the Hebrews 40 years in, in the wilderness. It's, it's like, if you want to follow God, just go where the presence is. Like you, just see him and just go where he's, 
where he's going. And uh, I should tell you a story. Um, a few months ago, uh, and I, uh, you've heard about this before. I think most of you have heard about this before. Uh, a good friend of mine named Mike Hoverson uh, passed away unexpectedly. Um, Mike uh, had been a friend of mine for nearly 15 years uh, and uh, a good friend. Every time we'd go through California, uh, it was always like a refreshing and inspiring time to be with him and his, his wife and their kids. And, um, uh, and he, about five years ago, planted a church. It's a, a smaller than, than this one, um, maybe 80 to 100 people. Um, after years and years in youth ministry, he and his wife planted this church and uh, just doing a wonderful job, loving these people and serving these people. Um, and he, uh, with, with, no, with no warning or sign of it coming, had a, a heart attack just out of nowhere uh, at an Angels game in Southern California and, uh, and passed away. And um, his daughter uh, called to tell me about it. He, he's got three grown kids. And um, so I, I flew down there. I actually happened to be in California while... Uh, when, when he passed away and I was only like a 45 minute flight away. So I just, I flew in, spent a couple days with his family. I got to minister to his church, uh, during the time that, uh, that they were, uh, grieving when, when his wife told the church that Mike had passed away, I got to be there that Sunday to minister to them and to help try to give some clarity or perspective on the situation. And, uh, I've, I've gone out there a couple times and his wife and, uh, and kids and, and, sons-in-law, they, uh, they all flew out here, um, I don't know, a month ago or so, just to see the altar, to get to be encouraged, to come to a church service that they didn't have to be in charge of, to sort of take off their armor and breathe for a little bit. And, um, uh, and, and during that visit, we sat down afterwards and they said, um, you know, we just don't know what we're going to do. We, we are a church that's sort of disconnected from uh, any kind of oversight or authority and um, and so we, we, if you would have us, we would like to come under the covering of the altar fellowship, um, which is, was not a, a small deal for us, you know? And, and so we, we, we prayed about whether that was something that we ought to do. And my wife and I prayed about whether that was something that we wanted to, <laughs> wanted to do, right? Um, and I remember we were sitting at our kitchen table one day and we were talking about all the options for this church uh, out in California, and I said, you know, what we could do is just let the church die. I mean, there's lots of great churches in the world who will point people to Jesus, and, and they'll be okay. They'll figure it out. And my son Kai, who is my, my oldest boy, um, who I, my beloved son and whom I am well pleased, um, he uh, doesn't usually uh, tell us much. He, he's not one to make up a word from the Lord uh, for attention, but he spoke up that day at the dinner table, and he said, Dad, you can't let that church die. You have, you have to help them through this. And um, that matters to me. That's a big deal to me. My, my son's heart for this church is beautiful. And I, I explained to him, well, you know, if, if we're going to do this, that may mean that I'm having to go out to California sometimes, maybe even frequently. Uh, and he said, that's fine. I'll take, I'll take care of the house and look after, look after mom if you need to, but you, you just, whatever we have to do as a family, we'll do it, but we just can't let that, we can't let that church die. And so we begin to pray about what it might look like for us to 
help support them and sustain them as, as they um, move into the future. Now, our church, I don't know if you know this, um, our church took, off, took up an offering for them um, the Sunday after Mike died, and, and we gave $20,000, which is just incredible, $20,000 to their church to help lift the financial burden and, and get them into the future. And, um, and so we were, you know, kind of going back and forth and praying and seeking the Lord about what it might look like for us to help position them for the future. And then a uh, spiritual son of mine, Daniel Tercios, said, hey, do, you get, do we have a church in California? Do you know any pastors in California? Because I had a dream I think might be prophetic. Uh, and I said, well, we, we don't, but I need to hear this dream because there's stuff going on behind the scenes that I think this may speak to. And so um, he began to spell out this, this, a dream of, of a, a church that he saw that was meeting in a barn, like a wedding, a barn style wedding venue. And, uh, and I said, well, that's us. Like, that's the altar. You know, I feel like we don't actually live in a barn, but in my heart, or we don't meet in a barn, but in my heart we do, you know? And uh, that's Tennessee. It sounds, like, it sounds like a Tennessee church in Southern California is what you're seeing. And, uh, and he saw this pastor, this, this pastor that was there that was welcoming us and, uh, you know, a bigger, a bigger guy who's a, a white guy. And, um, and he, there's more details that aren't relevant today, but, um, you know, he's ministering and, and actually bringing justice to that state in, in a huge way to, against some of the ideologies that have come against the gospel and against the kingdom there. He's, he sees this pastor leading as people are, um, as the church is worshiping like crazy and justice is coming against these, uh, these, these deceptions that have, these doctrines of devils that have, have tried to um, take that state out of the, the picture of what God is doing globally. And, um, and I thought, man, that is wild, you know. Um, what a dream. So I had him type it up and send it to me. I talked with my, my wife and we said, you know, do we have, what would it look like for us to really um, sow a seed into that, into that family there at Canvas Church in Upland, um, California, that would help bear fruit for them for years to come. And we said, well, what it would look like would be for us to put a, um, a spiritual son as the senior leader of that church. And we went back and forth and talked and prayed and said, well, do we, do we have anyone that could handle that? And, um, and the Lord said, you know who would do a wonderful job at that is uh, Nate and Amber Lobdell. Hmm. Hmm. And so, uh, our, if you don't know Nate and Amber Lobdell, uh, man, they're incredible, amazing family. Uh, they're in California right now, um, ministering at the at the, the church, and um, in about a month. We are going to be sending the Lobdell family from the Altar Fellowship to Canvas Church in Southern California. Um, and they're going to become the senior pastors of that amazing church. And they're going to do a wonderful, wonderful thing. And, uh, and now there's, there's a question that we're going to answer in the weeks to come about um, what the youth ministry here at the altar is going to look like. Um, I know that this has been, you know, I think Kai has been like, I've got to keep my mouth shut next time, you know, 
he loves, he loves, I'm just kidding. He, he loves the, the Lobdells and um, Kai's in their youth group. And I know there's a lot of um, young men and women in the room and, and even leaders that are a part of the youth ministry that are um, going to be uh, deeply uh, hurt by this. And I, uh, trust me, I feel it too. <laughs> um, but you know, our principal, we spent seven years serving in, in uh, the house with our spiritual father in Mobile. And believe me, there were plenty of times that I thought, gosh, I wish we could leave. You know, I am frustrated and confused and annoyed. And, you know, what are we even doing here? You know, and, um, and the, the Lord just said over and over again, he said, if you want to leave, it's definitely not time. And, uh, and I think that same principle can be applied here. Like if you want to send them away, it's definitely not time, you know? And, um, and so I think the fact that I hate it uh, tells me that, that they have the right place in my heart for me to actually send them with, with a, the, a, a, the generational blessing that they need to have to succeed where God's calling them. You know, here at the altar and in the kingdom, you don't just go, you are sent. And so they're not just going because they got some opportunity or because uh, they had some cool idea. Um, they are being sent with our full faith and blessing behind them. And um, we are going to cover them in prayer. We're going to bless them financially. We're going to look after them and believe that every year when they come back for our anniversary celebration at the beginning of January, that they're going to come back with incredible testimonies to tell us, amazing stories. Um, and uh, and, and uh, just uh, uh, they're going to come back as witnesses of God's supernatural goodness as it's demonstrated there in Southern California. And if any of you... Um, need to go to Disneyland for any reason? You just sw swing through and bless the Lobdells on the way. They live like 40 minutes away from it. Uh, now, um, I will say this. If any of you uh, feel a call from the Lord to go with them, I will bless that. Um, that's, I don't consider that to be a, uh, it's not, you know, we're not, nobody's leaving here. Like we're just expanding our tent pegs, you know. The same, same church, just a different state, okay? Same family, um, just under a different roof. And we, uh, um, are, we're going to send them right. And I don't, when I say we, I don't just mean me and, and Miss Candace. I mean we as a church. We're going to send them right. Um, and so one of the things that we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks, I want you to, to think about what it might look like for you to bless them financially for us to be able to send them with a significant gift um, to, to help. It's expensive to live in California. Uh, help them buy groceries one time, fill up their gas, fill, fill up their gas tank. <laughs> we, uh, you know, I, and so if there's, if you have the capacity to, to give a financial gift to the Lobdells, uh, Miss Mandy is going to set up a way for us to be able to do that. And, um, and we'll get you that information. You can ask her what, what that would look like. Um, you know, when we were first talking about it with them, I, I said, you know, everybody is running away from California. It's like a burning building. You know, people are escaping in droves. But the, but the, people, but the people that we admire most, the people that I admire most are the kind of people that run in when everybody else is running out. You know, I mean, the heroes of our culture, the first responders, you know, soldiers, uh, police officers, like these are the people that run into what looks like a hopeless situation uh, while everybody else is running out. And 
um, Nate and Amber Lobdell and their amazing kids are saying, here, here I am, Lord, send me. You know, they are stepping into a situation that people are running away from in droves. And they're saying, we're, we're coming full of faith that God's not done with California. You know, and so we as a family, we get the privilege of being able to sow a seed into that state. We believe is going to bring the fruit of the kingdom. People in that state by the millions have been leaving the church, but, but they're about to experience, they're about to encounter the kingdom in a way they've, they've never imagined before. Amen. They're about, to, they're about to see something that they have never even seen before. Amen. A, come on, Big Red. <laughs> Y'all don't. Okay, sorry. Y'all got to watch uh, Secretariat. Josh knows. Peyton knows. Peyton and Daniel, that's it. Yeah, if, sorry. We, we went through like a full year where Apostle Aaron would play this one scene at, in Secretariat. And this guy stands over the track. Secretary, y'all know, okay. So Secretariat's trainer, one of the trainers of the horse, stands over the track the day before Secretariat breaks all these records. And he says, hey, Kentucky, y'all about to see something that you ain't never even seen before. Come on. And, uh, and I just feel like there's an announcement to California that y'all are about to see something that you ain't never even seen before. Huh? And so... Uh, yeah, come on, it's gonna be it's gonna be beautiful. I cannot wait to see all that Yahweh does. Amen. Amen. Come on, we uh, we got a new building. We got a new a new uh, branch in Southern California. God's doing it, man. I'm excited. I I get it that it's tight in here and sweaty, but um, you know we're just what is it? You know we're just raising a scent offering to the Lord. Is that? <laughs> <laughs> an aroma, a sweet, a sweet aroma unto the Lord <laughs> from our, our sacrifice of comfort. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. We love you so much. Thank you for tuning in to this service from the Altar Fellowship. We pray that you are impacted powerfully by this message. If you have been personally affected by our ministry and you would like to partner with the altar as we work to establish the kingdom of heaven, please visit our website at www.thealtar.org.